from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize their impact on the world around all of us. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. Before we bring on today's guest, the amazing Dory Clark, who's going to talk with us about her new book, Entrepreneurial You, and its liberating methodology for personal success, there are a few new, uh, news items that I just have to note. I, I can't not mention them. Um, first of all is Harvey Weinstein and the now reinvigorated national discussion of sexual harassment, power, and silence. The New York Times brought the story to the surface. It's been growing and growing ever since it broke, and it's revealing not just his appalling behavior, but like Fox News, the collective organizational and individual silence that enabled it. Thinking about this, I want to give a big shout out to Lena Dunham's really insightful op-ed piece in the New York Times on the importance of stopping the silence. And I'd also like to thank the brave women and noble men who are using their celebrity to share their stories and express their outrage. We thank you. I'm also particularly grateful to the experts who have joined us here on Women at Work over the last few years, because as we know, this is an ongoing problem, and we're trying to address it and understand it more deeply all the time. But in particular, some shows that you might find valuable right now, Josh Levs and Sean Harper um, really gave us an insightful discussion and some new ways to think about the misogyny that gets excused as locker room talk and how men can deal with it with other men. And then we had the great good fortune of having Jane Hall, who's the former Fox News commentator and Emily Martin, general counsel and VP for workplace justice at the National Women's Law Center, who gave us really great advice on understanding this dynamic as a power dynamic and how we can navigate this complicated legal and professional landscape. Both shows are available on our sound on our SoundCloud page, um, which you can find at soundcloud.com backslash women at work. Um, so check them out and we'd love to know what you think. Secondly, um, an important report came out uh, yesterday, the annual Women in the Workplace Report, which is a joint project between LeanIn.org and McKinsey. Um, They surveyed more companies than ever before, 70,000, in fact. And it is a sobering and immensely useful view into the work that remains to be done on gender parity. Um, We're obviously going to talk about those issues and more as we go on with our Women at Work programming. But right now, if you want to check it out, um, you can get it at womeninTheWorkplace.com or through leanin.org, and you can download it. It's about a 19-page report, beautifully presented and important for all of us. Whether you want to change your workplace or survive and advance in your workplace, I recommend that you take a look at it. Um, You can also get links to all of these things by following me on Twitter at Laura Zarrow. So in a world that seems dangerous at worst unintentionally stacked against us at best, what's a girl to do? Well, one option is to take matters into our own hands and put ourselves in the position of power. Yes, embrace the entrepreneur in you to craft a life that's both personally satisfying and quite importantly, financially lucrative and freeing. Many of you may think that's easier said than done unless you're familiar with today's guest. Dory Clark, author of the newly released Entrepreneurial You, Monetize Your Expertise, Create Multiple Income Streams, and Thrive, is going to explain today how we can get started, build our reputation, and develop new forms of revenue, bringing 
in new clients to get us on our way to creating the career of our dreams. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join the conversation or get Dory's advice on how to monetize your talent, give us a call. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Dory Clark is a marketing strategy consultant and a professional speaker who's an adjunct professor at Duke University's Fuqua uh, School of Business. Her previous books are Reinventing You and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine and one of the top 10 business books of the year by Forbes. The New York Times describes her as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Uh, she's also an award-winning journalist, a producer of a multiple Grammy award-winning jazz album, um, and consults and speaks for a diverse range of clients, including Google, the World Bank, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, the Ford Foundation, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So with that, I'd like to say, Dory, welcome to Women at Work. We are honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk with you, Laura. And I'm thrilled at what we get to learn from you today. But I have a question I have to ask you first. How on earth did you become so good at so many things in such a short period of time? (laughs) You are too kind. Thank you. Well, most of the things that I do, and this is actually one of the the points that I make in Entrepreneurial U, center around pretty similar activities. In a lot of ways, it's really about uh, writing and speaking and and offering advice to people. And uh, I just do that in, in a lot of different forms. And if you can get creative about how to leverage that and extend your skills, sometimes you can open up whole new avenues and whole new revenue streams for yourself. So, well, we're super excited about the new book that came out. I know that in your previous books, one of the things that you have helped readers learn is how you can find your own breakthrough, as you put on standout, how you find a breakthrough idea and build a following around it. Really, how did you understand that this was what you were good at and this was what you wanted to do and that they could all align? Well, in many ways, um, I started my career as a journalist, and so I have continued with that mentality. I have a question that I'm curious about, and so I write books to help answer the question. I was really interested in in understanding and figuring out once I started my own entrepreneurial venture as a marketing strategy consultant, how I could differentiate myself. Um, We all know it's an increasingly crowded, noisy marketplace. (laughs) And uh, if we if we want to be able to get clients and, and get recognized, we have to do something a little bit different. And so I decided the best thing to do is learn from the experts. So in writing Stand Out, I interviewed more than 50 top thought leaders across a spectrum of different fields and interviewed them about how they actually had developed their own breakthrough ideas and how they went about spreading them and getting noticed. And then essentially reverse engineered it so that I could create a framework and a guidebook for regular professionals to be able to do the same thing. So while you tell the story in the book about how you shift from being a journalist to actually making a real living, doing speaking, um, vlogging, all these related but seemingly different activities that you have, could you share that with us a little bit? Because you were being paid like journalists get paid. Yeah. When I got my my first job in journalism, I was making... I think $28,000 a year, uh, and, I, and I felt lucky to get it. <laughs> and we should point out, you're not that old, Dory. 
<laughs> That's right. This was relatively recently. It's not like when I started working in 1988, $28,000 in Philadelphia. That was actually not a bad salary. That's right. That's right. No, it was uh, it, it was pretty tough wages to live on. But uh, but yeah, I would have been happy staying as a journalist. But fate and the economy really intervened. I got laid off from my job in 2001. And I I wasn't expecting it. Journalism, you know, we, we think of it now as like, oh, it's just been in decline forever. But of course, that's not true. The year 2000 was actually the best year financially in history for journalism. But things turned around very quickly thanks to the rise of the Internet. And newspapers just started hemorrhaging money. And so I got laid off. I couldn't find another job in journalism. And so in many ways, I got kind of, um, you know, pushed off the end of the pier. And I had to find another way to, to make a living. I had to find other things to do. And it was that process of being forced to reinvent myself that really clued me into the fact that reinvention has become the necessary skill set for professionals today. And it led me ultimately to write my first book, Reinventing You, in, in 2013, and to help hopefully work to guide other professionals through that process so that um, they could reinvent themselves in perhaps a little bit more systematic and organized of a fashion than I did when I was flailing around and trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> Um, you know, when you talk about, you know, you just jumped off the pier. I was thinking about how necessity is the mother of invention. And it's sometimes it's at these moments of desperation that we have no choice but to rally and we're often inspired to rally. At these moments, though, if we have any lingering sense of self-doubt, if we're plagued by imposter syndrome, it can get really big and bad and ugly at those moments when we're really down. How, did that ever present itself for you? And what do you tell to other people who don't yet know that they can believe in themselves? Well, one of the best formulations that I've heard about this, and I, I actually write about this in Reinventing You, is the a turn of phrase that Amy Cuddy, who uh, is a psychology um, professor, business professor at Harvard, uh, gave a famous TED Talk, yes. uh, discusses. And, you know, a lot of people have a problem with the phrase, fake it until you make it. You know, it's conventional wisdom, but a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, that's just kind of gross. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to fake anything. I don't want right. to, we don't want to be phony. That's right. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't want to just go down that road. But Amy Cuddy has what I think is a far better way to think of it. And the way she expresses it is fake it until you become it. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, it's not about trying to pretend to be something that you're not. It's not, you know, going around to bars and telling everybody, oh, I'm an astronaut. It's about really envisioning the future you. It's envisioning your best self and then working assiduously to reach that best self. It's, it's the process of developing yourself. It's the process of striving and I think if we can understand that, that it's not about, um, you know, tapping into something that's untrue, but it's tapping into something that is becoming true, that is a really different dynamic and I think can help people who are experiencing self-doubt in those moments. I have to tell you, as a fan of Amy Cuddy's work, and I, and I loved that notion when I first heard her present it, you just put it so beautifully. 
that we're going to just have to start quoting you on this one. Um, one of the things that's embedded in that is that there's this little nugget and that we've got to find the nugget of the potential in us, the idea in us, and have enough courage to put it forward. In the same way that we don't, we sometimes bristle at the idea of being phony, women in particular um, ha- have to and often feel they have to avoid hubris, that we can get vi- punished for being too self-confident at times. How do you recommend women navigate that tricky road of I've got to find my nugget, hold on to it, celebrate it, develop it, and still communicate in ways that will be accepted and embraced? It is a challenge that that women disproportionately have to face in the workforce. But I, I think, you know, for all of us, we have to carve out the way that feels right, the, the way that feels authentic to us. Um, I can tell you personally the way that uh, <laughs> that I do it for for whatever it's worth is that uh, when I am expressing my ideas in the workplace or in a professional context, I I don't I don't back down a bit in terms of expressing my level of certainty or my level of of passion or commitment for an idea. If I think that that something is is the case, I will state that. If I think that something is a, uh, the way that we should go, I will be honest about that. Um, but I'm also very conscious to make sure that I do it in a really friendly way. And <laughs> the, the reason for that is that it, it is uh, kind of a, a common trope that, you know, when women are uh, powerful or competent or assertive, they're, they're viewed as, as being bitchy in some way. <laughs> right. you know, that's always the, the place that people take it. Yeah. And so I, I want to make sure that uh, that people get the distinction. Like, oh, I, you know, I might I might be pretty certain about my information, but I'm nice about it, and <laughs> I'm not going to compromise on the idea if I if I know that it is the correct thing. But I will try to be friendly and gracious in the delivery and in my relationship to other people. I don't I don't need to. Uh, to, to steamroll people. I don't need to be mean to people. I, I can be firm while being nice. And, and that's the line <laughs> that I try to hew to. I think it's excellent advice for everybody. Um, but it also leads me to some thoughts I had while reading the book about that's actually in a very simple way, a form of personal marketing. How do I get my idea heard? How do I package my idea so that um, the idea is fully embraced without barriers to consuming it. And it seems like a central um, value, a, centra- a thing that's core to what you talk about is we've got to believe that we've got something to share and that the trick is in how we share it. Is that fair to say? I, I think it's true. I mean, ultimately, um, we need to we need to have confidence in ourselves in order for other people to think it is worth their time to have confidence in us. Um, it's a busy world, and <laughs> yeah. people are scanning really quickly. You know, there's a lot of things that demand their attention. And so it, it's, it's not their job, and it shouldn't be their job to have to be the talent scout for you. 
You know, if you're like, well, I don't know, you know, then they're just going to be like, all right, next. (laughs) Because there's already a a line of people out the door that are like, no, me, me, me. I think this idea is brilliant. And so they want to know that that you believe in it enough. So I I do think that that's a necessary initial threshold that that it's our job to cross. And uh, and only then will people be be willing to make the investment to pay attention. So. Using that metaphor, if we've crossed the threshold, we fundamentally believe that we've got something to share. One of the things that you talk about is how we turn our expertise really into products. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it happens? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think a a challenge that has occurred in the modern uh, workplace is that a lot of times – the way that people actually make money from things these days has uh, has shifted. It used to be pretty simple. I mean, I was a journalist and I would write articles and I would get paid for the articles, you know, pretty pretty basic exchange. But these days, a lot more of business is operating in a slightly different way. To, to borrow a phrase that I first heard from the internet theorist Doc Searles, it's shifted from making money from something to making money because of something. And so in my own life, this plays out because right now I actually spend a disproportionate amount of my time still writing articles. In in many ways, my job still looks like being a journalist, except I don't get paid for any of it. And if that was just where the story ended, it would be pretty awful. I was like, oh, wow, yay, modern economy. Um, (laughs) But but the good news is that that's not where the story ends. Uh, and, And in fact, I've been able to create revenue streams around the writing, revenue streams because of the writing. Ah, so that's that's where the difference is. So as a journalist, where you're reporting on the world around us, part of what you've shifted to is your thought leadership comes out in your books, and then the writing is about how to take those ideas and share them. Yes. And so people see the the articles, you know, and and they – they get them for free, and I don't get paid for them. But if people are interested, then they're able to hire me for things like giving a keynote speech or executive coaching or consulting or online courses, and those are paid opportunities. And in the aggregate, they pay me much better than, than journalism did, right. thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm talking with the amazing um, Dory Clark, author of Reinventing You, Stand Out, and Entrepreneurial You. Um, if you want to get some advice from Dory, about how you can monetize your talent, um, give us a call at 1-844-942-7866. That's 1-844-WHARTON. We'd love to hear from you. Um, So, Dory, in this process of shifting from journalism to writing your books and emerging in all these different forms, was there – how did you build up to not get distracted by doing everything at once? So one of the, the key points when it comes to developing multiple income streams, and, and I, I do think it's important for everyone, even if you have a day job that you love and, and want to keep forever, I think it's very useful for, for everyone to create multiple income streams so that you have uh, kind of a, a side thing just in case or, or so that you can um, pursue a, a hobby, for instance, and you know make a little money on the side. Um, I think that it is important to note that you should not try to be creating too many income streams at one time. I I think a reasonable goal 
is to add one or possibly two per year. That's it. If you set out and say, oh, I'm going to build 10 new income streams this year, you're going to pull yourself in, in too many directions. It, it requires too many new, new skills, and you won't be able to do a good job at it. But I think a good plan, a good pace for people is if, for instance, you have been making money in, in one way, let's say you've been a consultant, you could say, you know what, I really think that my clients would be interested in receiving uh, my information in the form of an online course. That's what I'm going to pursue for 2018. I'm going to learn how to create online courses, and I'm going to launch one by the end of the year. And you develop that, you launch that, you learn how to do it the right way. And then once you've got the mechanics down, great, you can build on that. You can pick a different income stream for 2019. Um, but I just wouldn't do it all at the same time. It makes sense to focus, use your energies well, limit the distractions, because no matter how you slice it with your first endeavor, you still need to maintain your day job one way or another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And ideally, what you are looking for is streams of income that complement what you're already doing. Um, it, it's hard if you want to do wildly different things. You know, if you if you want to be a tennis instructor and you want to uh, have a, a travel agency and you want to be a dog breeder, you know, th- those are all <laughs> completely different things. Right. Um, so you're bringing but, a point. So the, I can see that it's important that they're aligned, that they work together in some way. That's right. If if they if they coordinate with one another, then if you're investing time in in the new income stream. You actually don't feel like it's a waste or you don't feel like it's time away from your regular job or your regular income stream. It actually is just another way of supporting and promoting that. So, for instance, um, when I write books, that, of course, takes a lot of time. It, it, that's time that I could be spending coaching or consulting. But I realize that in, in writing the book, that becomes a marketing tool that in the future will drive further people to my coaching and my consulting work. So it's actually an important source of fuel um, to sustain this kind of work and help it expand, because there's also going to be new topics in every book that are going to help you reach out more broadly. Precisely. You know, there's another value to um, having this kind of side hustle that you don't intend to replace your primary job, but to augment it. Um, we've heard guests before talk about the importance of, A, maintaining your financial independence um, and having that control over your life so that the additional income stream can be critical to that. But I've also seen when people in the workplace have other forms of revenue and other forms of engagement, they're less frightened. They seem more confident, more comfortable with risk, more willing to have their voices heard because all their eggs aren't in one basket. And I think that's completely true, yes. So there's a, a different kind of power that's not just the financial that can come from this. Did you yes. find that as you were building some of this? Yeah, absolutely. When, when people who have day jobs have a side gig, it, it gives them an additional, an additional level of, uh, of comfort, of confidence. Mm-hmm. And essentially what, what it means is that because they have something to fall back on, because they have other options, they don't have to be yes men anymore. And 
you know, they don't have to be like, oh, yes, boss, that's brilliant, boss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they they can they, they feel a little bit more freedom to be able to call it like they see it because they know, you know what, I'm not so dependent on this. And a magical thing happens, Laura, when you stop being a yes man, which is that you become a lot more valuable of an employee. People Isn't that are, amazing? Sudden, they're, like, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. You, you, you see a problem with this idea? What do you mean? And then you, you share your opinion. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> right, Kim Scott wrote this wonderful book on radical candor. And part of it is creating that kind of open discourse in the workplace. And it's so hard to get to. You know, aside from our discomfort at having real conversations with each other, the power dynamics make people afraid. And I think it's interesting that you point out that they act, it's not just that they will feel more comfortable, their voice will be more readily available and more authentic, and they're going to be more valuable. So Absolutely. So that's like reason number three. And now I got another reason, which is that um, when, and this is actually for the employers who may learn that their employees have these other side activities. Well, we know that we have places like Google who have encouraged employees to develop themselves broadly. This can bring your employees and your organization a whole new network, a whole new stream of visibility um, and ways of keeping your the person who does have the side hustle um, engaged, excited, nourished in whole new ways. Do you find that employers, like, would you recommend people keep this a secret? Should they share it? How do you deal with this with your boss? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm never a fan of telling people, oh, yeah, keep a secret. <laughs> that usually doesn't go very well. Um, so I, I, I think that, uh, that, that that would probably be just rather disastrous of a recommendation. Um, but the, that being said, I think that in the past, the, the fear, the, the sort of you know, classic uh, formulation is, oh, don't tell the boss because the boss is going to be threatened by this. The boss is going to think, oh, you know, they're leaving. They're, they're not interested in their job. They're going to be messing around and moonlighting on company time. Um, and and it'll, it'll just cause a lot of problems in your life to, to put yourself under scrutiny. But more and more for enlightened bosses and enlightened companies, we're actually shifting to the the complete opposite model, which is that entrepreneurship is not a sign of disinterest. It's not a sign of somebody who's getting ready to check out. Entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial impulses mm -hmm. is a sign of a leader. It's a sign of somebody <laughs> who is ambitious and, and wants to do things on, on their own charge, uh, which is exactly the kind of person that you want to promote and reward within your organization. So I'd say we could sum up by saying, A, to the employers, don't be afraid of these people. Embrace them and encourage them. It can benefit you both. Um, and to the people out there who have these impulses, you know, find that nugget in you and hold on to it and believe in yourself as you build this out. Um, Dory, we're going to be back shortly. We need to take a quick break. And to our listeners, if you want to join in the conversation, you have questions for Dory, give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And when we get back, we're going to talk about all kinds of things, including what I think I may call the three Ps, pricing, piloting, and podcasts. Um, this is Laura Zarrow on Women at Work on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We'll be back in just a moment. 
listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today we're talking about how we can make real it, personal progress in a constantly evolving gig economy. Where I have the pleasure of being joined by Dory Clark, author of the new book, Entrepreneurial You. If you'd like to join the conversation, our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And do you have questions about, you know, building your reputation, pricing your product, or figuring out how in the world do we make money from podcasts? Give us a call. We would love to hear from you. So, Dory, welcome back. Laura, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I want to start off with this question about, so how do we build a reputation? So ultimately, if you want to become a recognized expert in your field, I spent a number of years studying this and ultimately developed a framework uh, that I teach in my recognized expert course. And it turns out that becoming a recognized expert involves three key components. The first is content creation. The second is social proof, and the third is networking. And very briefly, uh, content creation, it could be podcasts, it could be a book, it could be speaking, it could be podcasts, but somehow you need to share your ideas publicly. Otherwise, right, makes sense. People won't know if your ideas are any good. (laughs) Right, like if you hear a tree fall in the forest and, you know, nobody hears it. That's right. Uh, Number two, social proof. This is essentially a term borrowed from psychology for credibility. What, it, what is your credibility? Why should people take you seriously? What are your credentials here? Number three, your network. This matters because A, if you have good people adv- advising you, people in your circle, they can help make your ideas better and they can also serve as the earliest ambassadors to help you spread your ideas. So those are really the three critical components. That's a great way of describing it. It makes it feel absolutely accessible, even though each of these things are big on their own. So I want to explore them a little bit. So in content creation, you were talking earlier, obviously, you've written, you were a journalist, you wrote books. For people whose first skill, first endeavor is that they're not writers, how do you suggest they go about approaching this so that they can take, like, take me, for example. I'm not by trade a writer. I'm an educator. I'm an innovator. I'm a designer. I'm um, a radio host. If I wanted to start to put the many ideas that I have out there so that I could share my ideas beyond radio, what would you suggest that I do? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of skills that, that we can build on, right? I mean, essentially, you're... you're God, I hope so. <laughs> you're, you're doing it with radio, right? I mean, this is, you know, it, it, we are really platform agnostic here. It's about the ideas. <laughs> okay. And so it, it's, uh, it could be, you know, blogging or writing, of course. That's kind of a standard go-to. It also could be audio, meaning podcasts, radio. It could be video. Um, I mean... To take one well-known example of someone who's built a strong personal brand in the in the business world, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, who now runs his own content agency called VaynerMedia. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He first got his start on YouTube making uh, very, very popular video series. 
And the reason that he started doing that, he had originally considered becoming a blogger, but he hated writing. He thought he was a bad writer. And he thought, you know what, I just I just am not going to be good at this. But he loved talking. Uh, he was he was very uh, he had a real facility for that. And he figured, you know what, let's let's try this video thing. Let's try this YouTube thing. And it was enough to get his ideas and his name and his brand out there. So you could, you start from a position of strength. Where are you most comfortable? Where are your, are your ideas most easily expressed for you at that moment? And then that gives you a launching pad. Absolutely. Okay. And so then, because, you know, the one of the things we work on with women at work is, you know, we've got our radio show and that generates a lot of content that we can share in other ways. Um, but then there's that question of credibility. How do you establish it? How do you know if you have it? Yeah. So when it comes to credibility, essentially, there, there's a lot of ways that you can get it, right? There's not, uh, there's not one formula. But one of the, the fastest things that I would suggest to people is to try to affiliate with brands that people already know and trust. That, mm-hmm. that is really the, the shortcut to credibility. And so there's a number of ways that you can do it. For instance, um, one might be if you have some kind of an academic affiliation, like, oh, I don't know, Wharton. <laughs> that <laughs> right. could be one way of doing it. That's, that's a name that people know and trust. Um, you could also start blogging for high-profile publications that people have heard of. You might have uh, worked for a company that, that is recognized in your field, or maybe you've done consulting work for, uh, for some blue-chip companies. You might, for instance, uh, take on a leadership role in a professional association. All of those things are signs that people in the know have, have already vetted you. That's how people view it. And so in, in a world where folks are just being asked cognitively to be doing way too many things, you know, oh, who's this person? Are they legitimate? Are their ideas good? It's, it's kind of relaxing for them to be able to say, oh, she writes for the Harvard Business Review? Okay, well, if she's good enough for them, right. uh, you know, I already trust them, then, then she must be good enough for me. I love how you put that, that it's relaxing, because I think <laughs> you're bringing a certain empathy to understanding the decision-making on the other side, that um, in the same way that we want to get the opportunity to do the new work, to share the ideas, to stimulate the new revenue streams, the people who are hiring us, particularly if we're an unknown, um, they need to feel confident in what they're doing. And the more that we can help them relax and feel at ease with us, the more we get to the actual work, which is the fun part, right? Absolutely, yes. So one of the things I appreciated when you wrote about this in the book was because you pointed it out in different places, and, I, and it really helped drive it home, that that social proof comes, like you were saying, from many different layers of things. Like in your case, it's that you've done work with, with Yale University in addition to the organizations that you've written for. And each one seems to have given you a different dimension. When people are starting out, do you suggest that they court clients in order to build that kind of multi-dimensional social proof? Or do you start with finding clients because you need clients? I, I I think that job one when you're an entrepreneur, obviously, is to get business, period, to get money in the door so that you can support yourself and, and have your business as a going concern. But rapidly behind that, once you get to the point where you are, in fact, making enough money to, to make sure, okay, I can pay my rent, I can do what I need to do, um, job two is to 
accrue as much social proof as you can. And I, I think you're really astute to put your finger on this. This is something that I over-indexed on early on. I, I really went out of my way to do things, to try to build up credibility and to have an array of name brands that I had some connection to. So when you and, say you over-indexed, what did you do? So I, I specifically sought out opportunities. So for instance, I decided that something that I would enjoy, but also something that would be beneficial for my resume would be to pursue teaching opportunities. So I spent months, you know, several months, very assiduously making lists of uh, academic institutions, do sending cold emails sometimes or warm emails if I could somehow figure out a connection to department chairs at these universities to see, you know, could I come in and do a lecture? Uh, did they have teaching opportunities for executive ed programs, um, et cetera, et cetera? And, and really actively pursuing those connections. And as a result, I was, I was able early on after the release of my first book to be able, you know, I, I can now say, like, it's not, it's not like you need to do this all the time, but <laughs> having done it once, it's important. I can say, oh, well, you know, I, yes, I've guest lectured at the Harvard Business School, at the Kennedy School, at, at Wharton, at Sloan, at, you know, et, et cetera. And it, it does give people a confidence in the legitimacy of you and your material. Right. And it also must have done something for your network, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's helpful on many levels. So speaking of networking, um, as you're trying to develop, you know, build your social proof, you're trying to get your content in the hands of other people, create um, a stream that's going out there. Your network is critically important to getting it launched. How do you suggest people, what's the first step people should take? As you think about ways to build your network, I, I think that in, in many ways, it really does just start with one or two people, right? Because the, the easiest way in is to get recommended from one friend to another, you know, mm -hmm. somebody introduces you. And so once you, you meet a certain small number of people, then things kind of take care of themselves because people will make introductions and they'll, they'll help you. Uh, the real question is, how do you start? How do you make those first few connections? And I can tell you that one strategy that I pursued, which I, I really recommend for almost anyone, is that early on in order to build my network among other business authors and thinkers, um, I tried to, quote unquote, lead with value by introducing myself in the context of asking people to do an interview for a blog that I was writing at the time for Forbes. And this went over pretty well because <laughs> just about everybody would like to be interviewed uh, on, on the Forbes blog. And the first interaction they had with me was not me asking for something. I, I wasn't you know, demanding, oh, help me with this or give me that. I was saying, here, let me promote you. Let me help you. Yeah, and so it created favorable associations. And it's fundamentally generous and curious. 
Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And it, it, le- it led to many great relationships. I'm not surprised. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I am your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Dory Clark, who's the author of the new book, Entrepreneurial You. If you have a question about what you're, we're discussing, you want to talk about how to stimulate your own network, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Dory, I want to come back to this network question and how we get it going, because I can see that if you connect with one or two people and you get them to connect, you you know, like the old Fabergé commercial, you get connected with them and so on and so on. It starts to build and eventually you find the places that get appropriately stimulated. In the book, though, you talk about almost like it has singular importance building an email contact list. Could you talk about why and how you get there? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a big fan of building an email list, an opt-in email list. So this is not just like, oh, let's take all the people I'm connected with on Facebook and and LinkedIn and then plunk them into an email list. (laughs) An Um, important distinction if you want to keep those friends. That doesn't usually go over so well. (laughs) Uh, what, what you want to do is get people to consciously and proactively opt in to your email list to hear from you. And the reason that this is so powerful is that if we do actually think about social media, um, studies have, have shown again and again that even if you're connected to people, a very small percentage of people will actually see your your individual message. It's it's a small hit rate because there's there's just so much content. They get flooded. Um, one uh, one gentleman did a, uh, a study about Twitter uh, a few years ago, and he his name was Danny Sullivan, and he discovered that somewhere between two to five percent of your Twitter followers will normally see a tweet. So I mean, it's just really abysmal. You can't just like tweet something out or put something out on Facebook and assume like, oh, now the world knows. <laughs> um, odds are that's not the case. Right. But your email list is something different. People generally still open their email. A, a much more common uh, email newsletter response rate is about 20 to 25% open. Now, that's not everybody, but it's 10x what it is on social media for people seeing it. So it makes a, a huge difference. So if you can get someone to opt in, to raise their hand and say, yeah, actually, I would like to hear from you. This is interesting to me. Then it's a very powerful way to, to reach people. It also seems like it's um, a good safety mechanism because you're getting their contact information as opposed to pointing them to a site where you don't know if they went there and you don't know how long they – like you can get analytics when you blast your own email list. But you also – if you change platforms, if you change URLs, you can redirect your list. That's exactly right. And, and one of the, the big points as well – is, of course, that the email list is a relationship and a connection that you own, whereas if you're just saying, oh, come like me on Facebook, well, in 2013, everybody in the marketing world had a collective heart attack when one day, without warning, Facebook changed their algorithms and they made it harder for advertisers, or they made it harder for uh, for companies to reach their their fans, the people who had liked their page, without actually paying to advertise. Now, of course, that is perfectly rational from Facebook's perspective. They are a publicly (laughs) traded company, um, but everybody was nonetheless shocked about this. We shouldn't be shocked anymore. That's what they're going to continue to do. And so we keep the control as long as we keep it with an email list and we're publishing on our own platforms. 
Exactly. So what about LinkedIn as compared to Facebook? Because when I think about, um, now granted, I am admittedly, and as we often discuss here, a little old school about this, Facebook is my social world for the most part, and I'm not very active on it. And LinkedIn, um, daily, I'm getting more and more contacts, and it grows and grows and grows. Some of them I barely know. Some of them I have deep professional relationships with. Some of them are personal people who I also know well, you know, but they're part of my personal life. How do you suggest we use our LinkedIn community when we're trying to both create social proof and expand our network and get our messaging and content out there? Well, LinkedIn is definitely a valuable resource. I mean, this this has become um, more and more a necessity for people in corporate life. I mean, I, I, I would not hesitate to say that anyone who has a job, you know, mm-hmm. let's say let's say anyone who's out of college uh, and is in the professional work world, you should have a LinkedIn profile. This this is something that uh, has a lot of benefits. Number one uh, is that LinkedIn pages are ranked very highly in Google search, and so if you do have a LinkedIn page, odds are that is one of the first things that will come up about you when someone is searching for their name, which inevitably they'll do if they're thinking of working with you or hiring you. Now, what is great about that is that a lot of the rest of the stuff that might come up about you in a Google search <laughs> could be really random. Right. But uh, your LinkedIn page is something that, that you have created yourself. It's exactly what you want it to say. It's exactly how you want to represent yourself. So that's really powerful. Any um, do's and don't do's um, on how you use your LinkedIn network and how you message them as you have these new kind of uh, products to offer and services to offer? Well, I think that um, I think the, the key is just treating it as a conduit to reach people, you know, thinking of it as kind of an alternative email inbox okay. rather than, uh, you know, oh, hey, it's a new sales list for me. <laughs> right. The, but the fastest way to alienate people is to uh, is to hit people that you don't know very well and say, hey, we're connected on LinkedIn. So let me sell you this thing. I mean, that's that's not what people want. That's not what they're coming to LinkedIn for. And so if you if you treat it as essentially a warm connection, I mean, if, if someone connects with you or wants to connect with you, that shows that they're they're you know interested in who you are and what you do. Maybe uh, maybe it's appropriate to ask that person for a conversation or mm-hmm. coffee or something like that. Maybe you could start a dialogue to learn a little bit more about who they are. But I certainly wouldn't just, you know, hit them initially and uh, try to push them into something uh, just the same way I wouldn't do that if I was meeting them at a Chamber of Commerce event in person. Right. And that also I think one of the interesting things about LinkedIn is it's got a publishing component. So you can put content out there, but that in a way is a gift to your audience. It's not a sales pitch. Correct? That's exactly right. And and I am a big fan of uh, people publishing on LinkedIn. I mean, one of the, the real hassles until just a few years ago with, with blogging, which, you know, I mean, blogging is a great way to get your ideas out there, to establish expertise. I, I would always encourage people to blog. But there was one huge caveat, which is, hey, unless you want to keep blogging, unless you want to uh, continue maintaining a blog, then, you know, be aware it's going to look bad if you start blogging and then give it up because, you know, who wants to go to a blog that hasn't been updated for six years? I mean, you know, no one. Right. So these are these are hungry little monsters that need to be fed. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But LinkedIn is a little bit different because, 
people are not coming to your LinkedIn page because, oh my gosh, I have to read the latest blog. They're already on your LinkedIn page because they're just interested in you. And so if they see that you have some blogs, that's perfect. They're already interested. They already want to learn. They're going to check it out, but they're not going to be upset if you haven't blogged in a while. It's not like there's (laughs) the expectation. It doesn't diminish the perception of your value. Exactly. Um, By the way, we have an email from Julie from Cinnaminson, and she wants to know, because she... Her work has her generating an enormous amount of audio content that everybody around her is interested in podcasting. But the big question is, how do you make money on podcasting? Um, How do you price it? And how do you get revenue from it? Do you have any advice for Julie? Well, I do actually. One of one of the case studies in entrepreneurial you that uh, that I think is most interesting actually is a guy named John Lee Dumas, who is the creator of a podcast called Entrepreneur on Fire, and he started his podcast five years ago. And and at the time, even more than today, the the mantra was, well, you know, podcasts are nice, but nobody makes money at it. But he realized a crucial a crucial fact that in many ways everyone else was missing and it really catapulted him to the top. And that is the way that advertisers decide if they want to sponsor a podcast is they look at a number called CPM, cost per meal. Uh, that is, uh, that is the, the number of, uh, of thousand downloads and, uh, and then they pay a certain price per, per thousand downloads. And so they, of course, are not really interested if your podcast is tiny. You know, if 10 people are listening, whatever, they don't want to bother. So you need to have a lot of downloads. That's that's the key. If you have a lot of downloads, then you can get them to pay your CPM and it'll be worth everybody's while. And so he realized that everybody was doing weekly podcasts at the time. But it wasn't so much that that's what the customer wanted. It was that they were just busy. The, the podcasters were busy. They had other obligations. And so one a week was about all they could manage. Right, because I, um, I haven't seen any robust internship programs at business schools saying, come podcast on a daily basis and we'll pay you. That's right. That's right. Um, but John Lee Dumas realized, you know what? If the number that matters to advertisers is the, is the number of overall monthly downloads, mm-hmm. not, not subscribers, mind you, but downloads. And on a people, monthly basis. That's right. He said, oh, if I do a daily podcast instead of a weekly podcast, that is literally just out of the gate 7Xing the numbers. If you have 1,000 right. subscribers and they're getting a weekly episode, well, that's, that's 4,000 downloads. If you have 1,000 subscribers and they're getting month, you know, daily episodes, that's 30,000 downloads. That's an exponential difference. And so he started – he went all in. He created his daily podcast. And he was able very rapidly to, to cross the threshold where advertisers were interested in his podcast. So he started bringing in good money from advertising. All the other podcasters looked around and said, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? This is amazing. And so he took that momentum and converted it to creating an online community for other podcasters called Podcasters Paradise. It costs $1,200 for a lifetime membership. People started joining in droves. That became an income stream for him. And so he's really become a guru among podcasters and has built up a business now. He publishes a monthly income report on his website. He is bringing in somewhere between three and $500,000 oh a month from his podcast. That's incredible. Okay, so two questions about making this real. So it seems like there's two critical 
components here. Um, one is that you need to have subscribers to your podcast, and that's your job to stimulate through your own marketing and network development, right? Yes. And then the second pivot here is about the advertisers. Um, you know, in traditional media, there's a sales team that goes out and pitches the advertisers. Do they find you in podcasting because they're getting this data about the download rates, or do you still go and pitch the advertisers? So sometimes if your podcast is, is you know, gaining a lot of traction, um, sponsors might come to you, uh, but a couple of strategies. Number one, if you do in fact get enough downloads, there are uh, podcast networks, and uh, and they will uh, they will help represent you, and they can negotiate ad rates uh, and ad buys for you. So that's a possibility. Uh, another possibility, if you want to go grassroots, is that you can listen to other similar podcasts in your field and see who's already advertising on those podcasts because hey, they're clued into the medium. They're used to doing it. Mm-hmm. And you can reach out to them and say, hey, guys, I have, re- I have now reached you know, such and such threshold where I have you know, this many downloads per month. Um, I notice you advertise on podcasts. Would you be interested in advertising on mine? And you can start that d- dialogue directly. That is amazing. Dory, this is all fascinating, useful stuff we can build on. We didn't even get to scratch the surface of things like pricing and piloting and audience feedback. There's so much to learn from you. Um, If you have lots of content, and I have a feeling that that content are all useful to our listeners. So can you tell us how they can find you, um, particularly if they're interested in these different topics? Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And uh, I do actually have a free resource that I hope might be interested to uh, people who are engaged in this topic. It's the 88-question entrepreneurial you self-assessment. It actually walks people through the process of thinking about how to develop multiple income streams in their own business. And folks can get that for free by visiting my website, doryclark.com. And if um, they if they want to take the step that precedes it, because um, I know that you also had a wonderful assessment with Standout. Where can they find that? Same thing on your website. Oh yeah, if if folks would like to get the uh, the Standout self assessment, that that helps you identify what your breakthrough idea is and, and begin to build the following around that. Um, you can indeed get that uh, get that right off the website as well. DoryClark.com. It's D O R I E. C-L-A-R-K dot com. Dory, you have been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm Laura Zarrow. This has been Women at Work on Sirius XM 111. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Dory and our whole production team. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>